Welcome back to 28 Summers, the podcast for anyone looking to live more adventurously. My guest today is Alex Staniforth. Alex is an adventurer, a speaker, an author and a charity ambassador, and he has made two attempts to climb Mount Everest. But this isn't your typical story about climbing Everest. Suffering from a mild form of epilepsy at nine years old shattered Alex's confidence. And frankly, self-esteem issues with panic attacks and anxiety were a regular theme from his childhood. Relentless bullying throughout school and a lifelong stammer in his speech left him, in his own words, with a victim mindset. But after experiencing paragliding on holiday, aged just 13, he unearthed a love and a passion for the outdoors, and he found a way to prove to himself that his challenges should not define him. He began to question these self-limiting beliefs through outdoor challenges and learned that we can't always choose our challenges, but we can choose how we respond. Alex, welcome to the 28 Summers podcast. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Really, really excited to chat to you. Hi, Jay. Yeah, great to be here. And thank you for having me to share some of the adventures and the journey so far. Good stuff. Well, look, before we get into some of your big adventures, I, I always like to start kind of way back at the beginning. So curious to know what like a really young Alex was like. What were you like as a, as a child? Were you really adventurous and active or did that come later in life? I mean, I'm still, I guess you could say I'm still fairly young for an adventurer now at 25, but uh, I was the opposite of where I am now, to be honest, in many ways. I had a pretty normal start, if you could describe normal. You know, my parents gave me everything I needed. I was brought up near Chester, uh, only child, and I always loved nature, you know, always walking my dogs in the local forest and enjoyed that, but nothing physical, um, hated sport, school, hated PE, and I had a really relatively challenging time when I was growing up. I had epilepsy when I was nine, and that was only very mild. You know, luckily, it, I've not had a seizure for, you know, ever since, really, um, but was the catalyst for lots of challenges, you know, anxiety, panic attacks. Having a seizure once in McDonald's meant that just the smell of fast food could trigger a panic attack for many years. I was just a nervous wreck going through school. Um, I've had a stammer ever since I've been able to speak which comes and goes when it likes, despite now being a professional speaker, but I'll come on to that. Um, And that's, you know, I've I've never known how to speak and say things how I want them to be, or at least not all the time. Badly bullied, no no self-confidence, no self-esteem, victim mindset, you know, believing I was born to fail. And I was very academic. I was quite talented in some ways, but not in the outdoor world at all. And... My dad was a runner, so I've kind of I've got that off him in time. But yeah, until I was about 14, I was um, very much the opposite of where I am now, to be honest. Yeah, that must have been, I can't imagine how hard that must have been. And I experienced some bullying at school when I when I was younger and, and, and it was really traumatic. And, you know, I'm... I'm a bit older than you. I'm 43, and 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 I only really recently kind of reflected back on some of that stuff. It sometimes takes a long time to process, doesn't it? It does, and it stayed with me today. You know, I still see some of my behaviours and thought patterns are probably connected to that. Um, very self-critical, very much a high achiever, perfectionist mentality, and I think some of that is because I never felt good enough. And even today, you know, I, I still have my own mirror and people would say oh, I've done so much when I'm so young and all that but it doesn't mean anything to me because I'm still raising that bar and challenging myself and 
only a few years ago did I realise that I have nothing to prove anymore. But I think finding the outdoors was my way of fighting back. It was my middle finger to all those bullies and to prove myself wrong. Um, but if you're trying to prove people wrong, you're only going to fail in the long run. You've got to be able to do it for yourself. And, and that's what it's become now. But yeah, it, it has a lifetime effect on you. But like anything, you have a choice of how you respond to it. And that was the turning point, really. And that's how I think about it now is using that adversity as a, as a fuel, really, and, and still trying to do that to the best I can now. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And, and, and I, I, totally, I totally get this idea that in, in the early years or at first, you would, you would kind of use some of the anger and residual frustration with the way that people treated you uh, as fuel, uh, as the fire, to kind of go back to people and say, well, screw you, I'm, I'm doing well now. But like you said, it, that's not sustainable long term, is it? Just not in terms of mental health and um, you know, well-being. It's just not sustainable to kind of live that way because it's quite a negative way to live. So it sounds like you feel like you've got a much better you know, outlook on that now than, than you did you know, maybe say 10 years ago. Yeah, sure. I look back at that and I mean, I, I left school what, at, after the May levels at 18 and it feels like a, a long time ago now. Um, and yeah, there's no real remnant because it's just, it, it happens, you know, and, and you grow from it. And I, I always laugh at some of the things I used to get worked up over and used to get into fights over and, you know, um, but when you're a kid, it, it hurts, you know, you, you don't know how to respond to it. Um, I'm very grateful for it because it, it it made me want to not fit in, to be different, to, to find my own path and to find somewhere I, where I belonged. And Outdoor Challenges became that. So I'm really grateful because a few years ago, you know, people I've been at school with would say to me, oh, you know, you've been busy. And it was just a really, it's a really satisfying feeling, you know, um, to not need their approval anymore. And uh, maybe that's a real problem with social media nowadays is is this need for just, um, you know, need for approval of 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 society and the affirmation, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a pretty um, endless cycle. So I look back at it now in a positive way. Absolutely. You know, and I wish I could give my advice, give myself advice all those years ago, not to let it get you down because it's, it's a choice, you know? Yeah. I think that's always a question I like to ask. Actually. I think it's interesting to know. Typically I would ask it to somebody you're probably much older, but, but I, but you've kind of touched on it there. I think it's really interesting that to say, you know, what advice could you have given yourself if you could speak to yourself at 9, 10, 11, 12? And it, and it sounds like it would be focused around, you know, don't take this stuff to heart. And, but what, what other tips might you have given yourself? Well, as we'll come on to, probably not to climb Everest when I'm there, but um, I think it's, it's just to know that this will pass. You know, the, the biggest problems, the biggest challenges can feel really permanent. And then you get stuck in this horrible mindset. And I think it's just to trust the process, you know, Everything that's happened since, it's had meaning in the end. Either you can't find it at the time. I mean, with the bullying, I'd say obviously, you know, is is not to let it get to you because in time it'll it'll you look you look you know, you look back and laugh and nobody can make you feel anything. But I think in general it's that sense of this too shall pass, trust the process, keep going, uh, and it will work itself out. Um just learning to be comfortable with that is is a challenging thing. And that's where I think the outdoors teaches you that resilience to to keep going through the unexpected, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom there, and I, I completely agree with you. And I and I also think that, you know, the bravery to to go forward and do things and make decisions, e- even when you're terrified and uh, and scared, what people will say is uh, is is so powerful. And and it sounds cliched, but 
you get a lot of growth. One way or another, you're going to get growth, right? Whether it's, whether it's uh, great at first or not so great at first, there'll always be growth and there'll be learning. So sounds like you've had those in spades. And we'll get onto that in a minute. But um, you, you've already alluded to the fact that getting outdoors has been foundational to you in terms of personal growth. And I, and I wondered whether that was quite deliberate. You said your dad's a runner. Did he help you, encourage you to get outside? Or was it just an accidental kind of experience that, that exposed you to something that you ended up loving? I wasn't really encouraged towards it. I mean, I wasn't like one of these families where your parents are climbers and you start climbing when you're four and you can, you know, climb like a monkey or, or you know, like a lot of these, you know, these mad athletes are, is they, they have it in their blood. Um, I think my closest, closest thing to that was when I was on holiday uh, in France when I was about, about 13, I think my stepmom put a bet that I couldn't go for a run with my dad uh, or keep up with him. And he was quite a fit marathon runner by that point. And I was really unfit. Um, and I, nowadays, I, I can't stand to think of myself being unfit. You know, it, it's a, a, a vital part of, of my identity now. But back then, I, I've always had that kind of wanting to prove people wrong mentality because of all the bullying and started to kind of challenge all these limits and I put on myself. And I wanted that to, I wanted that two euro bet. So um, I did, I went for a run with him and I got my pan of chocolate as a reward. Um, and I think it, that was the closest kind of challenge memory I've got. And I'm really grateful for that experience, but my dad had always encouraged it, you know, but not, not been forced into anything. I'd just been exposed to lots of different things, but it was kind of self driven that I was on holiday in Turkey when I was about, about 14. Um, and there's something called, yeah, there, there was something advertised called paragliding quite extreme sport you know it's not like you're just taking the park run you know it's jumping off a seven thousand foot mountain and i'd always been interested in flying and aviation i'd wanted to be you know i wanted to be a pilot for many years and, and all that and i saw this thing advertised and i just had this kind of strange confidence and urge to, to do it you know i don't really know where that came from but i think it was just getting sick of being the victim and starting to starting to really question all these limits i had i told my mum i was going to do it and she kind of gently pushed me towards it, but then sort of thought, have you gone mad? <laughs> um, prior to that, the most adventurous thing I'd done is probably, yeah, the odd hill walk, well, the, the odd, you know, local walk with my parents or, um, yeah, that was maybe mountain biking around, around the forest. I love being outside and nothing challenging. Um, and that flight scared the life out of me. I mean, I've never been so scared in my life, but that moment hanging in the air, is what changed the whole mindset to that victim mindset to this victory mindset to think, oh, actually, I can overcome anything I put my mind to. And that was the real turning point, you know, one experience. Now, I'm not saying that anybody can do that and they'd have the same, you know, things have to fall into the right place, but that was the mindset shift. And when you shift your mindset, you move everything else out of the way. Um, and from then on, I realized I could. Because when you realise what you're capable of, you want to keep on challenging yourself. And that's what I've kind of been doing since, is from then on, I had that confidence from that reference point to do more and more. Um, then it was scuba diving, it was rock climbing. I then went hill walking in the Lake District with, with a friend and his family. And that's when the kind of interesting mountains and Everest came about. And for now, it was a case of why not? You know, I realised how much I could miss out on by saying no. So I just wanted to find what else I could overcome. And gradually the anxiety and the loss of confidence started to fade away into a passion for the challenge, you know, and, and just 
wanting to discover my limits. And, and I guess that's kind of what's been driving me ever since. Yeah, I love that, Alex. Thank you for sharing that. It's a, it's, um, it's a really powerful story, right, for people who are, who are scared to, to make a change or step out of their comfort zone or uh, fear, fear of failure. Um, it's so much of it is mindset. You know, so much of so much of physical performance and adventure is all in the mind. Um, so yeah, I, I I love I love that message, and I think you're spot on. I love the way that you articulate this kind of victim mindset to victory mindset, and, and implicit within that, as you said, is it's not easy. It's not as simple as just saying it, but but that is a journey that is worth going on because at the end, you then you have suddenly developed this reference point that you then have in your life to always say, as you, as you just articulated that, well, I did that so I can do this. And that becomes really powerful. You know, I'm a dad and I say that thing, that's kind of thing to my kids all the time is once you do it once you show yourself that you can do it again. And that is transferable to other parts of your life. And that is like a gift. It is. It, it's also become a challenge at times because after, you know, after some challenges and after, you know, after Everest, it kind of gets to that point when that's your bar. You raise the bar so high, you have to work pretty hard to get to that bar again. And and there's that expectation, that identity with with Everest is that you you kind of it takes a lot to match that. Um, and so yeah, you raise the bar and bar, and then you, you almost have to do a bigger challenge to reach the same to get the same fix, if that makes sense. Um, but then also in the downtimes, you know, in the downtimes, there's also that kind of your you're meant to be the guy who's done this and done that. And therefore you have this expectation and maybe other people start to have that expectation. Oh, just because you've done that, then you should be able to do this. And that human, that humanness never goes away. You know, you still have to have those bad days and, and, and it's that being able to expect that you're not that person forever. Um, so it's really powerful. You've got to have that reference point. And I think that was the, the challenging part around the pandemic is nobody had that experience of it you know, we were in new territory. Um, so we learned a lot. But yeah, early on though, I think we definitely need that reference point. It's like, you know, if you do a half marathon, okay, you know you can do that, you can do it again, you know, and you just have to transfer as much of that as you can. Yeah, I really like that message. Well, look, we, we kind of touched on Everest a few times, so I'd like to go there. But I know you climbed Mont Blanc when you were, uh, I think, um, 17 and uh, – and then a year later, you, you went to the Himalayas, you climbed Mera Peak. So they gradually get us 4,800 meters, then 6,500 meters. Were those uh, deliberate steps towards Everest? The dream was there already for Everest or did that happen on the way? Yeah, so I kind of had the Everest dream I've, I've alluded to when I was on that hill walk in the lakes. And the first time I've been there and just the hills, the beauty of the lakes blew my mind. Um, so much so that I actually moved up here about two years ago. And... I came back with that with a kind of a curiosity, you know, a fascination around the mountains. And I remember asking the question, where is Mount Everest? You know, didn't know anything about it, just had this curiosity around it. And I think when I'd seen pictures of it, when I come across the idea that actually mere mortals had climbed it, I just decided this was it, this was what I wanted more than anything. This was my life purpose. I found strange, but it just got me like nothing else had. I guess a way to overcome everything else. So at that point, as a naive 14-year-old, I kind of committed my life to this big mountain. And after that, I then went climbing in the lakes with a mountain guide who'd been up Everest four times. So I thought, I've got to meet somebody, one of these like superhumans you know, who've been there. And I just started to kind of quite, pra- quite pragmatically, you know, make a bit of a plan, learn how to get there, you know, what I needed to do. Mont Blanc was then kind of the conscious first step to 
to getting some experience on a bigger mountain, still only just over half the height of Everest. Um, to then go from the Alps to then go to the Himalayas on that was a Mera Peak in Burundi, getting a good grounding in climbing in in UK hill walking and summer climbing, winter climbing and, and stuff like that. Uh, Mont Blanc was a really easy access point to the first step. Um, you know, it's not just about your physical training. It's about being able to take care of yourself. But it was very much a conscious plan. You know, I looked to what others did. What others did. Tim, my guide, you know, he kind of mentored me in terms of raising the hoops and I had to jump them if I wanted this enough. But it didn't become a, a goal as such until 2012. So I was kind of slowly working towards it as a one-day thing. But um, after, after the uh, Olympic torch in 2012, I had this massively exciting year of opportunity and, and, and it was amazing. But then I got injured. I suddenly, I couldn't run. You know, I got this big passion for running and, and, and I was kind of more interested in that for a while. And that's probably the only sport I'm marginally any good at because I'm just too tall and too lean for everything else. Um, and I lost that purpose. And that's when I sank into depression, anxiety, and an eating disorder. And it's strange having that lowest pit of, of kind of hopelessness. You know, I, that was really when Everest turned from a dream to a goal because it had a deadline. And in that kind of lowest point, I remember reading the book by Bear Grylls of how he broke his back um, just before he climbed Everest. And that's what gave me the hope that I could get through this, to get through this injury, get back to sport. And it also made me think, if I try Everest in 18 months in 2014, I'll be the second youngest Brit. That would be massively helpful in terms of getting the funding together to, to actually make it a reality. And so, uh, you know, 17, so 16, injured, being told I'm made of a train again, working in, you know, a local pub washing pots at the weekends, doing my A-levels, I decided I was going to climb Everest in 18 months. Um, and that purpose got me out of that pit basically and then you know I basically put those final steps in place committed and uh, 18 months later I was standing at Everest Base Camp. Amazing and and you know for those that perhaps don't know it is it is no mean feat to even get to, to the base of Everest right just in terms of uh, preparation equipment cost training so that journey must have been tough for somebody you know, getting paid to wash pots on the weekend while you're studying your A-levels to then be able to find, I assume, companies to sponsor you to, to go would have been a real challenge. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, well, I can't vouch from experience, but that was probably the hardest part. And people who have climbed it said that was probably just as hard. Um, but I was really inspired by other climbers that had done the same. You know, they, they were that reference point. They were the hope that I clung on to. And I just followed their approach. I learned, I asked as many questions as I could. And they were the proof that I could do it. You know, from a normal background, my parents were very supportive, but they weren't just going to sign me a check. And corporate sponsorship was the only option I had. But for those who don't know at the time, you know, to fund a place on a commercial expedition with the right support, the right support team, and then all the extra training and altitude I needed to get beforehand. And the kit, you know, you're looking at like 40,000 pounds probably over 50,000 pounds. So commitment really is key. And I think that's where a lot, a lot of people go wrong is they kind of make it, a, you know, it's one of those things that, oh, it'll happen one day. I'd love to do that. But unless you make it plan A, it kind of becomes plan B and you give yourself an easy option. Um, and yeah, you know, getting the training time in a very short time, people say, well, what was the rush? But I kind of had that deadline. And I think until you set a deadline, things don't get moving. 
But when you have that accountability, you know, I was terrified of failure. I was terrified of the bullies proving me wrong. Um, I just went all, you know, all out. Everest was my full-time job, you know, scraped from A-levels and worked full-time on sponsorship for a year. You know, went out to Nepal for a month in training and you just got to trust the process. You commit yourself fully because, you know, you may do it, spend a year and a half on this and then not get the funds. But if you don't believe you're going to get there, then you've already failed. Um, so I think it was that commitment really was, was the hardest part, but then it's about momentum, you know, having great mentors and support. Um, I, I wouldn't have got there without their help, you know, but I think what I found is that when you have a passion and a goal, people want to be part of that. They want to help you because we've all been there, you know, we've all needed that leg up. Um, and yeah, it just happened very quickly, but, uh, I didn't know I was going until four weeks before. Yeah, I got my final sponsor um, in February. I went in the end of March. I just had this faith, this trust that it was going to happen. You know, um, there's an old saying, you know, I will find a way I'll make one. And that was kind of my, my mantra really is when I was fundraising, it was about prioritizing, you know, commitment. And every day it was like waking up thinking, is this going to get me to Everest? You know, sending email after email, thousands of emails. Um, at the cost of, you know, nearly my A-levels, you know, friends, fun, social time. It was just day after day of emails or pot washing or training. But hey, you know, I'm very grateful for that because it got me to where I am, you know. So tell us, um, tell us a little bit about what happened when you, when you finally got to Everest. Well, we flew into Lukla. You know, I joined a team with Tim, uh, Tim Mosdale, uh, who's based in the Lakes and, and a few of us, you know. So we had a really good, experienced team. You know, Tim is very careful, wants to be part of default. And um, we trekked into base camp, which takes about three weeks. A day before we got there, a massive avalanche hit the icefall and 16 climbing Sherpas were killed. So massive tragedy, you know, the biggest in Everest history at the time. And uh, we just had to pack up and go home a week later. You know, everything went really wrong. Um, it all kicked off with politics and all that. And, and yeah, obviously we had no right to complain. But it was quite bitter at first. I mean, I won't pretend it wasn't, you know, after all that, you know, it just goes like that. But very quickly you accept it and you think, okay, how can I turn this into a positive? What can I learn from this? And uh, when you mentioned before about the power of mindset, you realize that Everest is probably 90% mental, only 10% physical. And I'd really struggle on the altitude, you know, despite, well, being 18, you, know, you think the opposite, but younger people tend to do worse. That's when I invested that time, that extra year of training into the, that, developing that endurance, that mindset. Um, so yeah, I came back and picked myself up again and, with, with a bit of help from my friends and um, had to raise the money uh, again. But luckily I had a, you know, had a sponsor, you know, you know, I had a sponsor, which I kind of I found from doing a talk about a month before the first exhibition, a Westgrove group, you know, they bought into it straight away. So second time around fundraising was a lot easier, fortunately. Um, and then when I went back, you know, a year later, same team, same format, what could possibly go wrong now? Well, we, had a great start to the trip, you know, it all felt right. And then, uh, we were going up to camp one from base camp. Uh, I think it was on the 25th of April when the earthquake hit Nepal. So, oh yeah, we had to start with that. Basically we were trapped on the mountain camp one for two days with aftershocks, avalanches, you know, we got hit by a big blast of powder and base camp was wiped out like a plane crash, you know? So yeah, if we, if we not left base camp that morning, we probably wouldn't be chatting now. Yeah. 
It's just an in- incredible story. Um, so obviously that you know brought to an end a, a second attempt. Um, but but I think you know a, a clear lesson for you on we talk about mindset already, but on controlling, like worrying about controlling the controllables, those two things were entirely out of your control. You did everything right. You did it. You had a great team. You prepped well. You got your sponsors. You got yourself there with the right mindset. Uh, and it and it was something out of your control both both occasions, I guess. When you look for the moments of growth from these things, one assumes that that at least is something that you take as a positive from that, is that you know that you did everything you could do. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, control is everything. And that thing has been a really big lesson the last 12 months is just to focus on what you can control because the more you focus outside of that, the less power you have. And at Camp One, you know, we were trapped up there for, well, for, you know, for two nights at 6,000 metres. The route down to base camp's gone. We've got, you know, aftershocks and avalanches every half an hour, uh, which could wipe out the entire camp. We we know base camp down below is gone. You know, we've 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 heard, you know, that, you know, that, you know, that's just how the three of our team had gone with it. And we just didn't know what was going on. Um, we only had food for a day or two at most. And yet, the only thing we can control is our attitude, staying hydrated, staying fueled, and just, just keeping safe. You know, that's all we can control. And I think the sooner you can do that, you know, the sooner you can move forwards and make the best of it. And uh, you've no, there's no training for that, though. You can't train for these things. You, you just throw it on the spot. And, um, I think, again, I'm, I'm actually grateful for the experience again because it's taught me so much and it's taught me how fragile life is. At 19, having that moment of being hit by this thing, thinking, that's it, genuinely thinking that this is it. And there's been a lot of trauma with that and, you know, six years, it'll be six years this year. Um, it still lives with me, always will. You know, why them, why not me? Um, but you realise that so much in life is out of our control and failure can be inevitable but really success is i think is about the journey and that's the biggest thing i've learned is if you're always chasing the top sometimes you can miss the point um so yeah learn the hard way (laughs) you know and i think i'm grateful to have that at 19 because it's guided me to where i am now and and i realized since then i don't need everest you know i don't it it's got me and it sent me on a different different journey um so so yeah, I mean, obviously, I'd love to go to the summit. Uh, maybe one day. I'm too young to say never, but it's given me so much more than that. But I think it's made me realise, you know, what really, really matters. You know, when you've been away in Nepal and and for that length of time, and you see people that have so little that give so much, you see people sweating over the small stuff, and it it just puts things in perspective, I guess. Yeah. No, I think I think that's really well said. I mean, you've already answered one of the questions I had for you, which is. Uh, do you think you'll you'll ever you'll ever try to go back and wh- whether that's to summit or just to go to base camp right just to go back to to where you were well depends if my, if my mum's listening but I think <laughs> interestingly in 2017 at, after my kind of big challenge in the UK I went back there for three weeks on a charity trip so I was going out there to visit some projects for a charity trust and then I kind of combined that with a bit of a personal trip to base camp. well not to base camp but in the same area and I wanted to go back and see some of my friends and the Sherpas I'd known from Everest. And um, I sponsored a schoolgirl out there, so I wanted to meet her. And the family of a Sherpa friend who'd been killed in an avalanche the year before. And we obviously had some money for them and just wanted to meet, you know, meet her and the kids. Um, but that actually was just a solo trek. I only had it 10 days, so I didn't go as far as base camp. But 
to stay with friends that I've been there. And I think just to put things to bed. So the last time I'd seen it, it was devastation. You know, houses crumbled to the ground, just death and horror. Um, and it, it was kind of a closure trip for me. You know, I'm getting goosebumps to talk about it now. Um, but just to see the mountain and to be at peace with it. But there was something there, you know, there's something strong enough to get me there in the first place, come hell or high water. But I think it's just not yet. You know, I've realized I'm really bad at altitude. On on uh, until you in 2016, I got to sort of 7,000 meters and uh, the altitude stopped me again. Um, I've never really had a chance to properly climb Everest. And I think everything I know now about endurance and the things I've done, I think if I went back, providing the conditions allow me to, I would... I would I'd do well and it would mean so much more. Um, but at the moment, I'm just too busy and, and I just can't commit the same time and effort to, to get back there. So, uh, yeah, we'll see, I think. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly as well earlier. You know, when you, well, you've, got to, you've got to make that decision and commit to it. It's not, it's not like an ancillary dream that you can have. Um, you know, I always, I always say, oh, yeah, Everest on my bucket list. But, I mean, uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to do it because it's, it's, it, I'm just saying that the experience of going to Everest would be amazing. I'd love to summit who, who, who wouldn't want to do that, frankly. But to your point, there's a difference between having a dream to do something and committing to a dream to do something. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's good. You've got, you sound like you've got a really good balance on that and you've maybe made a little bit of peace with it. And I probably wouldn't bet, bet against you going back at some point in the future. You're still a, still a young man. You, you touched on um, your challenge in 2017, and, and I would say, you know, arguably that's that's like your biggest journey yet, um, where you, you raised a huge amount of money for for mental health charity, but you climbed. Uh, well, well, you tell us, you tell us about the challenge that you did in 2017. I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah, so I guess after Everest and Chowu, there was this transition to UK challenges, and just this light bulb moment of am I really making the biggest difference on this mountain halfway across the world, you know, 23,000 feet? Um, had I been in that tent Everest the year before, buried under, under ice and rock at base camp, what would I have left behind? Um, and that made me kind of think close to home. And I was really inspired by Elise Downing, who ran around the coast of the UK, sort of 5,000 miles. And I actually kind of got people along the journey and engaged, and people were part of it, and just had a massive buzz around that and got to explore some of the UK. So... I came up with something similar, you know, I wanted to use do something human powered um, for mental health, something different. I, I never liked doing the kind of conventional stuff um, and to kind of break a record, you know, I want to have the physical challenge element there. So ticks all the boxes, I had this idea of climbing to the highest point of all 100 UK counties, cycling, walking, running uh, and kayaking 5,000 miles in 72 days to all 100 county tops. So it only really been, really been done once before by Johnny Muir. Uh, and the routes always changes. It's very hard to define a county. So it was it was something different. And it was just the most rewarding, incredible, challenging journey I'd been on. And, and it's probably not the hardest challenge I've done in, you know, if you measure it on that, but just the the, the whole logistics and the operation and everything around it was just mega. And um, it was the first time that I'd actually achieved something I set my mind to, which is really nice and very, very, very rewarding. But the best thing about it was getting to appreciate some of our, our home country that m- many of us don't and getting people part of the journey, you know, coming out, walking, running, cycling with me for the first time. That was the really powerful thing, I think. And yeah, I loved it. You know, it had very, very low moments and, and some 
incredible surprises that I'll never forget. You know, the hardest part of that is just the day-to-day grind because I didn't really factor in many days off. It was more a case of racing around as fast as I could, which is a shame, but to have the physical challenge, you kind of have to have that balance. Um, but yeah, epic journey. And um, I can't believe it's more than three years ago now. Yeah. I loved it. As soon as I read about it, I mean, I, I unfortunately I didn't know about it at the time, but um, it's amazing. I think, I think it's a really cool challenge. Um, and I know, you know, this year I'm, I'm pack rafting the Thames from source to sea, which is 300 kilometers, right? So it's not, it's nowhere near as far, but, but I know just, I mean, basically that's following a river, right? If you think about it, I'm either running alongside or paddling on a river and it only goes one way. And yet I know that that is proving to be a huge kind of feat of logistics, just planning the route, making sure I know where I'm going to have to portage the the kayak, where I'm going to sleep at night, all of those things. And that's a pretty straightforward route. So I can only imagine how much planning went into you know, a hundred UK counties in 72 days. Did you have a good team of people around you to help you? Um, I had a brilliant team, but in terms of planning, I'll be honest, it was kind of me uh, doing everything. Um, and I don't want to sound really vain saying that, but I've always been a bit of a one man army and I just have great advisors and supporters, but there was no support team. It was just me on the bike, with everything on the bike. And then I had friends dropping in now and again for a few days, which was a lifesaver. You know, I had a couple of really, 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 you know, really, you know, invested friends who who came at the right moments, but it was very much a solo challenge, and I kind of wanted it to be that way. But um, don't get me wrong, you know, there were times when, for example, I'm I'm hypothermic, it's shooting down my brain, I'm on top of a hill in in somewhere in Wales or Scotland, I can't get any phone signal, I need to change my hotel or something, and I'm on the phone to mum in you know in bits, and she's saved the day and. You know, I needed a physio on day five because I tore a muscle in my quad. So I was on the phone to somebody else who then knew a physio who got me an appointment that night. So there were people that really saved at the right moments, but there wasn't like a, a dedicated team following me. And I've always liked it doing it that way because then it's just you versus the elements. But um, there was just these random acts of kindness, you know, as well. And um, in the planning, I mean, I had some some help with my friend Steve in terms of routes and, and things like that. And what I found is with the media side of it and with the, with the, with the route planning is something like that always falls apart because, you know, things change, you know, I had had the injury, then I had a chest infection and then I missed days. And then suddenly when one day is messed up, everything else starts to unravel and trying to get back on track is really hard. Um, I managed to finish bang on my schedule after a few mega days, like through the night cycling, um, but ultimately, you've got to be flexible because if, if you get so fixated on following dot by dot, then you just fall apart because things do change. So being, being flexible and having, having friends just to, just to be there in the car with you know, a hot drink, letting me sleep in the car when I'm hypothermic or letting you know having a bed for the night somewhere. Um, there was so much generosity along the way. That was, you know, that was incredible. Um, but when I went to the Isle of Wight, I, had a, I, I decided to kayak over there um, just to try and make it a bit as human powered as I could and then hired some mountain bikes on the island. So for that, I also obviously had a support boat um, to get me over there and back. Um, and then I got my only flat tire on the island of all places. So yeah, it, it was so much to say about it. I mean, so my book, Another Peak, talks about the whole journey in, in a lot more detail and, and trying to do justice to all the places really was, was a challenge. Um, but yeah, you know, some, sometimes you just need the right person on 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 the end on you know on the end of the phone when you're having that meltdown just to talk through the options with yeah 
Uh, it's, it's a great journey and uh, I, I think it's really impressive. And, and you raise money for um, the charity, I think Young Minds UK. And, 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 you know, we've already talked already about mental health being very important to you, so much so that you, you went on to co-find, uh, co-found Mind Over Mountains. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about that? Sure, I'd love to. So Mind Over Mountains started as, as, a, as a CIC when our charity was last year. And we, you know, our aim is to restore mental health through outdoor experiences by building, you know, resilience and self-help skills. And I think the, the, the idea behind it really is, for me, the outdoors has always been the most powerful antidepressant. You know, I, I reached that point after Everest, that low point and that loss of purpose when, you know, I ended up breaking down in tears from a GP and sank into depression and anxiety and eating disorder just to try and cope. And I, I had to accept that I couldn't manage this on my own. You know, um, I was supposed to be this adventurer, this athlete and all that, but, you know, it wasn't enough. And the outdoors helped, you know, undoubtedly without it, I don't know where I'd be. But I think the typical response from healthcare is, you know, you know, you know here's some medication, here's some pills. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but for me, it was just a plaster from the problem and it wasn't sustainable. And the outdoors helped me to find that purpose again. You know, I'm not sure, I'm not saying it'll work for everybody, but I think it's the most underused, underused tool that we have. And that we could really manage so much more of what we're seeing in society by providing access to these things. So what really struck me though, was it took me longer to get an appointment for my, you know, actually for my eating disorder after Everest than it did to cycle that 5,000 miles around the UK. So that's when it's like, well, what, this lack of support is, is well, what about everybody else? You know, it's falling through the gaps. Um, I got approached by a company called Adventure Uncovered who wanted to do like an impact event around the power of nature, nature, for, you know, actually for mental health. So they were doing an event and they wanted me to kind of be like an, you know, an ambassador and to talk about it all. And I kind of really got invested in that and, and, and got involved in all the planning logistics, but we wanted to make it more of a, more than just hill walking. We wanted to combine it with some like self-help and coaching because my, my, my very first kind of coach and mentor, Chris is a, you know, is a qualified coach and did a lot of, you know, he did a lot of NLP with me and it was transformational. You know, I wouldn't have got to Everest without that. And I wanted to bring him in, bring in some mindfulness, some inspirational speakers who've been there and overcome it and yeah, bring it all together in the power of nature. And the kind of fusion was just unbelievable. We were just blown away by that weekend in the lakes. And so me and Chris wanted to, you know, make it a charity to reach people who really, really need that. So that's how it started. And um, obviously we had lots of plans for last year, but then COVID had other plans. So we've had to really adapt how we how we work. But basically this is now my focus of my charity work. And my last challenge was all fundraising for this because I just wanted to be part of something where I can see the impact being made. Um, you know, rather than just raising money, signing a check and then not seeing it again. Yeah, well, it's amazing what you're doing. And, and I was I was curious to know because of lockdown, have you seen, you know, an increase in the number of people that that are needing needing help from the organisation? I think we're all seeing and hearing about it, but unfortunately not. I mean, we are really struggling sometimes to engage and fill places on our you know on our events. We typically now do these one day rambles where we're doing a lot of stuff virtually now as well, just to connect with people, and then like a weekend residential, which we're hoping to resume in the summer. Um, but actually we're, sometimes we're really struggling to engage the people that need, need it most because, you know, people pay to come on our programs, but then we have bursaries for people in financial hardship. So that, you know, so that anybody can access the support, but we don't think it's not, it's not pricing the barrier. It's not 
that we just people that really need it sometimes don't want to ask for help and maybe a lot of people do sign up but then on the day because of their conditions or their struggles they struggle to get there you know they it's overwhelming it's quite a daunting thing i mean whether i would have done something like that in my lowest points you get into that position of helplessness um so there's definitely an interest but actually for people to commit and take that step we're really struggling to get get people there once we're there the, the, the impact is transformational and some people have come back on our programs time and time again because they just get so much from it um, which is what it's all about but um but no i think a lot of people have got very isolated and our challenge now as a charity is just trying to reach them um because we know how much it helps you know yeah for sure and where so for people listening where can they find out more about mind over mountains yeah, if you visit our website, uh, mindovermountain.org.uk or just search for it on Google or there's a link to it on my website as well. Um, yeah, we would love to hear from them. And obviously, we have all of our events and, and all of our courses on there as well. And people can apply for bursaries via the website. Now, I can imagine as the uh, as the co-founder of that charity and having done some of the big challenges you've done, you may be you may be hatching a few plans to raise more money. So have you got any big challenges on the horizon that you're dreaming up? Oh. <laughs> uh, how did you guess? Uh, well, I think my passion now is is running, and it always, always has been. But now we're we've kind of Everest behind me at the moment. I, I just love running; it's my probably my strongest point, and I, it would always be kind of been on the back burner. And then you know I'd use it to train for things. But um, since moving to the lakes after 2018, you know I'd spent a year focusing on marathon running whilst writing my second book and. Um, got bored of chasing times and so the running in the hills still blows me away today so I'm looking for things around that and last year I did the National Free Peaks but I ran the distance between them so did things a bit differently um, climbing Ben Nevis, Scarfell Pike and Snowden but then running the sort of 17 marathons between them in, in nine days uh, that was my toughest physical challenge to date and I still don't quite know how an amateur ultra runner like me who never actually raced an ultra before could actually survive that um but i think that has really raised my own bar my own confidence in terms of my ability at multi-day ultra running so i'm really keen to, to push that a bit further i think my first challenge for the year is probably going to be the bob graham round which is a classic fell running challenge of um 42 peaks in 24 hours about twenty-seven thousand feet of ascent but at the moment i've got a, i've got any issues so i don't think that's going to happen too soon i need to get back to training and uh i think for the last 12 months you know running has kept me sane during lockdown um so i, I want to have an, i need to have another goal soon but um it's very very busy with the charity with my speaking work as well so i'm just trying to find the time so i think it'll be something something based on ultra running once i've once i've done done the bob graham as a bit of a warm-up um i've got a few records in mind that are all based in the uk involving a lot of running and maybe you know having to go at the three peaks we'll we'll see um but yeah running far and running long and just trying to take people on the journey really is uh, is what i'm looking to do love it and and by the way I, you and i have a, a shared kind of passion for for the uk uh, you know i think that uh, there's so much kind of rich and beautiful uh, landscape around us and and a lot of us over the years got a little bit stuck in kind of wanderlust and wanting to get on planes and travel to the farthest places around the world and covid has has taught us a lot and, and it's been we can't. <laughs> yeah we but you know i mean and covid's been uh, desperately difficult for everybody and and there's some tragedies but one of the good things i think that has come out of it 
has has been a realization that we've got amazing uh, you know, landscape and opportunities for adventure just just right on our doorstep in the UK. So love love to hear that you're really focusing on some of the challenges, and we've got some great you know historical iconic uh, routes as well. You know, like Pennine Way and Southwest Coast Path, and there's some pretty cool there's some pretty cool routes that you could take a take a crack at. Oh God, yeah, there's so much here, and I think that's one of the many positives we will take forward. And I know I have is I've turned over every stone in my local routes in, in the last year and become very grateful for that. And I think it's taught us all what's um, well, what's within our control and just making the best of it. And I hope it's given people some positive habits. You know, I read the other day that one in 10 people started running during lockdown to cope with their mental health. And I hope that continues. You know, I really hope people can can just think a bit, 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 a bit differently um, around what they can do. And if that, if that means this year we all stay close to home, I know I can't wait to travel again. Um, but uh, yeah, I really hope that it's helping people to get outside more often and to appreciate that. So yeah, I'd love to champion the UK because on that challenge in 2017, there's so many moments that blew my mind. I thought, is this really in the UK? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. So there's little surprises around every corner. You've just got to go out there and find them. Just got to go and look. Yeah. Well, look, um, it's been so much fun chatting to you, and uh, you know, your story's really interesting, and I appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, all of all of the uh, the highs and lows. Um, last question for you before we finish up. So 28 Summers is all about living adventurously, which actually is a lot of what we've talked about. It's really about mindset as far as I'm concerned. It's not necessarily how many mountains you've climbed or jungles or oceans that you've traveled across. It's more to do with uh, being open to the possibility of adventure and saying yes more and optimizing your life. So with that as the kind of the backdrop and the context, I, I wanted to know, what might be your advice for people listening who are who are thinking about trying to live more adventurously? I guess it depends how you define adventure. You know, as you said, it doesn't have to be climbing Everest, running ultramarathons, deserts a lot. And that's not achievable for a lot of people um, with their realistic boundaries and just how much they're able to commit. You know, I, I, I appreciate how lucky I am. Um, but I think it, it's it's often to get accountability. You've got to have a deadline. You've got to have something that's going to push you towards it. Because if it's a, a one day, then life will get in the way. You know, I think you've got to have some commitment. Um, for me, that's announcing a challenge. If I put a challenge out there, I, I know that it's kind of got to happen because I don't like to fail and I don't like to let people down. But then I know that I can't fail because I just get back up again. But I think it's having some accountability. You know, whether you book a ticket, you, 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 know, you book that race, you, you, know, you, you write a blog, you tell people you're going to do it because... I know most people won't have the reference point of an avalanche and kind of a, a near-death experience to, to push them towards that. But, uh, you know, life is constantly changing. And I think sometimes if you wait for the, the, the perfect moment, you'll never do it. There is, there is never a perfect moment for these things. Sure, have a plan, be sensible. But I think sometimes if you wait for that perfect moment for something, um, then you'll miss the top of the mountain. Because the mountain may look very different when you get there anyway. I know, it, you know, Everest turn something completely different so i think I've, I've turned into two or three tips there but i think it is that don't be afraid of failure trust the process and uh get accountable and just take the first step you know those small steps are everything um you know you know in ultramarathon if you think you've got if you, you've got 100 miles to go then crikey you just want to sit there and cry but if you think right i've got a mile to the next checkpoint um you can go a lot further than you think
Great advice. What a great way to bring it to a close. So fi- final question, uh, if people want to follow you personally, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, I'd love to hear from them. And, you know, if they have any, you know, if they have any questions or want to ask for any advice, please do feel free to, you know, find me an email or, you know, the inbox is always open. Um, and I'm on, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. So just search my name on there or my website is alexstanleyforth.com. So you can find all my social media and my books, Icefall and, 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 uh, another peak on my website as well um, and the charity so yeah i'd love to hear from people and uh yeah hopefully see them on a real adventure at some point soon when we're allowed to get back out but yeah looking forward to it and yeah hopefully jay you know you know i'll see you there and obviously when you've been on your you know you know on the adventure as well um you know i see you know you know us on the thames yeah you know i'd love to hear all about that as well and uh you know share some stories sometime yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Actually, one of the things that I'm planning to do is um, is take 28 summers on the road. So when uh, when Boris lets us out <laughs> and uh, COVID gives us the opportunity to travel, the idea is actually take the podcast on the road, go and meet with uh, with guests, have a bit of a mini adventure. So with you, it might be, you know, we go and run a short section of the Bob Graham or something. And then we sit down around the campfire and we just talk about adventure and, and life and you know, mental health and other things. So yeah, I would love to do that with you and I can share some of my, uh, some of my battle scars as well, but um, it's been great chatting to you today, Alex, and really appreciate your time. It's, it's been uh, real fun. Cheers, Jay. You know, it's always a pleasure and uh, yeah, you know, I look forward to catching up soon.